few years ago, we surveyed people in Edinburgh with the question, how would you fix the world? And um, it's a big question, isn't it? And uh, it was fascinating to see all the different responses that we had. We stopped counting at about uh, 360 responses, I think. Uh, and most people accepted the premise that the world was broken and did need fixing. I mean, there was uh, one person in 360 who said, um, you know, there's nothing much wrong with the world. It's fine as it is. Uh, that's not the majority view. Nearly everybody recognized that the world uh, was messed up in some way and it needed fixing. Uh, but there was a wide variety of responses about how would you fix the world. What was fascinating was that the number one response basically boiled down to this answer that people thought that we needed to fix people. Lots of people said that uh, that the heart of the world's problems was, was the selfishness, the cult of the individual. If only we could get rid of the me, me, me culture, someone responded. Some put it more positively. Uh, if we could just kind of be a bit kinder, more tolerant, if we could learn to listen and respect each other more. But it did make me wonder, when people made those observations, do they include themselves? Are they saying that they are part of the problem or is it other people that need fixing and they are basically all right? Uh, there's an old story uh, about the Times newspaper asking the question, what is wrong with the world? To which the shortest response was this letter. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. I mean, that's a humble response, isn't it? A recognition that he was part of the problem. Well, would you agree with that? Now, I'm, I'm not going to fix the world in a 20-minute talk, but I simply want to show you today what the Bible has to say because... The brokenness of the world is a very significant theme in the Bible. In essence, the Bible is an unfolding message about how God plans to fix the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Most people in Edinburgh agree that we live in a broken world. And it's clear to many people that the problem relates to us as human beings. Well, Jesus agreed with that. But his analysis about the scale of the problem will really push us. I mean, what Jesus said here is very controversial. We heard it read a moment ago, and while the context might seem a bit strange to our cultural sensibilities, the punchline at the end is very hard-hitting. I mean, the chapter of Mark's Gospel goes to the heart of the debate about what is wrong with the world. Then, as now, there are a variety of solutions that have been suggested. Better education better government, uh, more culture and arts. Some say more science and, 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 and technology. Other people say, well, less technology. Let's like make life simple. Others would say, well, we need more religion. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the time of Jesus would have basically opted for this answer. Uh, we need more religion. If people kept their religious practices, then the world would be so much better as a place. That's what they were uh, teaching and that's why they were so unhappy with Jesus because he basically seemed to undermine what they taught. In chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel we see a fresh verbal attack on Jesus as they criticized the way his disciples were behaving. Uh, his disciples were clearly not obeying their strict rules about hand washing. Now this is not about personal hygiene. This is not what a mum shouts to her kids before mealtime. Make sure you wash your hands. This is not about uh, ensuring that we're stopping the spread of viruses. No, this was a religious concern. This was about uh, maintaining some form of ritual 
purity before God. And the disciples were, were not keeping the Jewish traditions about hand washing. And so the Jewish leaders believed that the disciples were, were making themselves unclean before God. Now, we don't have time to go into all the really fascinating details in this passage. Now, I'm serious about that. There's some amazing things here. But Jesus does go for the jugular by calling them a bunch of hypocrites in verse 6. I mean, they were more concerned by their own traditions than with the, what God commanded them in their scriptures. And it's worth noticing that Jesus did recognize that what Moses wrote was the commandment of God and had supreme authority. And so obsessing about what other people uh, whether other people were following their man-made hand-washing rules, while at the same time promoting traditions that broke one of the Ten Commandments from God, that people should take care of their parents, honor your father and mother. Well, Jesus says, you're religious hypocrites. That's the charge of Jesus. And then Jesus teaches them what actually makes them unclean before God. Take a look at verse 14. Again, Jesus uh, called to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. It's a simple but profound statement. Nothing from outside of us pollutes or corrupts who we are. It is what comes from within us that pollutes and corrupts us. The, the problem is not external but internal. Seems straightforward, but the disciples don't get it. And so after the crowd, they, 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 and Jesus went back in the house, they asked Jesus what it meant. Are you so dull, he asked. Well, yes, they were. But the truth is that we're just as slow to accept what Jesus says here. I mean, I wonder what percentage of the population do you think would say that humans are basically good? What do you reckon? 10%? 20%? What do you think? I actually don't know the figures for Scotland, but... Um, in 2014, a study was done in America that found that 67% of Americans believed that people by nature were basically good. And for those who attended church that of the mainline denominations, that rose to about 76% that believed that people were basically good. And that's fascinating because that means that three quarters of those attending mainline churches in America are basically disagreeing with Jesus, the founder of their faith. Take another look at what Jesus says here and tell me what Jesus would answer if asked, are people basically good? Take a look at, at verse 20. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness and envy, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So how many people would Jesus say were basically good? No one. Uh, the human heart is the source of evil in the world, according to Jesus. Now, Jesus does acknowledge elsewhere that, that we're all capable of doing good and positive things. But at the same time, when people steal or kill or, or commit adultery or slander, that's not something that's unusual or out of character. All the seeds of those sinful actions are in all of our hearts. Now, this is such a significant point of difference, really, of how many people like to think of themselves. There's been a significant academic push to bolster people's self-esteem and tell people, you are basically good, follow your heart. That's kind of the theme of most Disney or TV shows, isn't it? After some ugly racist marches that took place in Charlottesville in America, Barack Obama 
tweeted this, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or his background or his religion. And that's very well-meaning uh, a sentiment, but is it true? Is it possible to raise a child so that they are basically perfectly loving and good and kind if we place them in the perfect environment? Well, we're not the first people to ask uh, these questions. Uh, in the Enlightenment, uh, uh, where reason was given the primary source of authority, there was a growing belief that as human beings we can become better and better. And I think that is a myth that's still in our culture. Human perfectibility is the key idea that through our reason and education, our scientific advances, we will create a better society. An example of this philosophy would be found in the 1857 book entitled Coral Island. It was written by Robert Ballantyne, who was born in Edinburgh. It's a story of three boys who get marooned in a South Pacific island and they recount their adventures meeting and civilizing the locals, making everything better and better. He wrote the book in Burnt Island, Fife, having never visited a coral island in his life, which is interesting. And this book, however, was the inspiration of another account of shipwrecked survivors written by William Golding, Lord of the Flies, published in 1954. And yet instead of locating the evil as outside the children that they could civilize, it located the evil inside the boys. Why the change from Coral Island to the Lord of the Flies? Well, what happened between uh, those hundred years? Well, from 1914 to 1918, we had the Great War, the war to end all wars. Warfare and mechanisms were developed that could kill millions. Nine million soldiers, seven million civilians died there. And then in 1939 began the Second World War, the deadliest conflict in human history. Estimated range between 50 and 85 million fatalities. And alongside the battles uh, and massacres, you've got the genocidal holocaust and then the use of nuclear weapons. Educated, sophisticated, technological, art-loving Europeans gave themselves to systematic slaughter on an industrial scale. Suddenly, it didn't look as if the human nature was basically good and continuing to get better. Sadly, look at society today. Read the paper today. Human trafficking, sexual exploitation, uh, slavery continues in modern-day Britain. People who believe that people are basically good do so because they have chosen to believe that despite the evidence. If people are basically good, then why does every nation have so many laws to control human behavior? Why have we got so many keys in our pocket? Why do we have to remember so many online passwords? It's as if we don't trust people. <laughs> the most ready evidence is that we're not basically good, and you see it in parenting. I mean, why is that as parents we have to spend so much time teaching our children to be thankful and thoughtful about the needs of others? Why is it that we never need to teach our children to be selfish and self-seeking? I, I think it is insightful that the biggest number of people in Edinburgh recognize that the problem to solve is fixing people. But too often, I think, uh, our thought process is this, it's other people that are the problem. I mean, every generation tries to make this world a better place than they found it. Every politician promises that they will succeed where others have failed. And the problem that is often pointed to is that it is, it is other people who are the problem. Uh, the far left blamed the rich, the bourgeoisie, the fat cats, the CEOs. The far right blamed the immigrants, the illegals, the unions. Democrats blamed the Republicans in the US. Republicans blamed the Democrats. And every movement fastens on the other people as being the problem and they are the solution. But listen to Jesus.
The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And of course, when we're talking about the human heart, it's in biblical thought, it's not the muscle that pumps blood. It's the, it's the person that we are deep on the inside. Now, anyone who's tried to make significant personal changes know how difficult it is because the problems are so deeply inside of us and woven into the very fabric of our being. Now, here's our problem. We can be cruel and selfish and commit all sorts of sins because we are deep down sinners. What we do flows out of who we are. The world is so messed up because we have evil hearts. Look what Jesus says, verse 21. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, there are lots of things that we can do to make a society of sinners less harmful and toxic and seek to regulate negative behaviors. There's lots of ways we can seek to advance good and human flourishing. People still do have a God-given desire to do good and make positive contributions. And we see this all around us. And so it is right and good that we teach and educate. It is right that we seek to improve conditions of people, uh, to eradicate poverty and the problems of debt, to seek to improve the environment, do less damage to the planet, seek to tackle social injustice, remove corruption, work against racism and promote the dignity and value of every human life. It's right that we have police, law courts, prisons to restrain crime and violence. But at the end of the day, these will not address the fundamental problem that our hearts are biased towards evil. There is this self-destructive power at work in our lives where we can so easily end up hurting the people we love the most. Where spiteful words and selfish behavior and great anger can come out of us against others. And our greatest problem is that actually God is opposed to that evil. He's angered by our lust, our adultery, our stealing, our murder, our destruction, our lies, our pride, our thanklessness. And Jesus is clear here that more religion will not fix the problem. Ritual hand washing cannot deal with the problem. Religious ceremonies, getting baptized, going to church, trying to do good deeds will not fix the problem. We need to be freed from the corrosive me, me selfishness that poisons our relationships with other people and with God. We need forgiveness of our sins and new spiritual hearts that can overcome our selfish nature. And that's why Jesus came as a savior. Two incidents uh, found in Mark's gospel. First instance, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus by some friends so he would heal him. And the first thing that Jesus says to him is this, your sins are forgiven. I mean, this man had lots of problems and it would appear that uh, his most pressing one was his paralysis. But Jesus focuses on the most important need. Son, your sins are forgiven. Second incident, the disciples, uh, two disciples make a pitch for the best job in the kingdom of God. Let us sit at your right and left side in your glorious kingdom. The other disciples uh, hear the request and get miffed because they're all jostling for the top jobs in the cabinet. This is human nature. This is me first. And so Jesus calls them together and said, you know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be our Savior, to be able to offer forgiveness and freedom from our slavery to our sin. A ransom is paid to free us from being slaves to our sinful desires. He came to offer up his life as a substitute to die in the place of sinners so that all our sins can be forgiven. And that through his saving death, uh, we, are, we can have our hearts that are cleansed and forgiven and we can begin to grow in a freedom uh, away from our sins and unselfishness that enslave us. As he was raised to life on the third day after his crucifixion, he was the first of a new humanity, a new creation. Uh, so that all who can now turn to him away from their sins and put their trust in him are forgiven and uh, begin the start of a brand new life. You know, we're not saying that every Christian is a perfect example of how to live, um, that we're the finished article. In fact, to be a Christian is to admit that we are part of the problem, that we have these sinful hearts. But we're those who are seeking to turn from our sin to trust Jesus. We're on the road to freedom. Christians are not perfect people, but they are pardoned people. And God promises his spirit to come inside of us, giving us new desires and a new power to live a changed life. Now, as Christians, we're still wrestling with hearts that desire still to sin, but God's Spirit is within us at work to help us change, to change violent people into loving people, proud people into humble people, selfish people into givers, blasphemers into God-worshippers, uh, grumblers into people who are filled with gratitude, uh, self-absorbed people into caring people, uh, harsh people into kind people. And if you realize this morning, like G.K. Jesterton, that you are part of the problem, then I want to invite you to respond to what Jesus has done for you today. To say sorry, I know that I need forgiveness for my sins. To say thank you, that Jesus came to be the ransom, to forgive you and free you, and to say please, please forgive me and change me to live for you. So would you join with me? in this prayer. Dear God, I'm sorry for the evil that I see in my words, thoughts, and life. I need your forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus came to save sinners like me. Please forgive me and come into my life to change me to become more like Jesus. Amen.